wondering this morning if you might have a friend or a family member that is similar to my friend. I'll tell you about my friend. Uh, I knew a guy, I've known him for years, and I met him right after he was converted to Christ. Uh, and this guy is on fire for the Lord, became really good friends with him. And as I stayed in his life, I watched him mature in the Lord and even become a leader in his church. He's growing, he's active, he's leading people to Jesus. Awesome guy, funny, smart, very gifted. And then I started to notice a small turning in the use of his language. He would talk about things differently. It was subtle, but it was a turning nonetheless. And not too long ago, um, he communicated publicly that he has found a new and better form of Christianity. Uh, the old form of Christianity is not loving enough, and he's discovered that God truly wants us to live here. And not over here where TCC is, but just a little bit over here, which in fact is ahead of where the traditional church is. You know, this kind of stuff has been going on for a while. Uh, years ago it was, uh, I've decided that the resurrection of Jesus is a little too irrational, so I'm going to move over here to advanced Christianity, right? You may have heard that, or you may have heard, I've decided that to believe in hell is a little too mean. So I'm going to move over here and say there's no hell. More recently, what you might hear more often is, I've decided that with, when it comes to sexuality, where Christianity is, is not loving enough. So I'm, I'm going to move over here and I'm going to say that any sexuality I want to express is what God would have me express. See, there, there's a movement in his mind away from something that's too limited, even hateful, over here to the progressive, advanced, new form of Christianity. Maybe you have a friend like that. Maybe it's a family member who said something like that to you. If you've ever had this experience with anyone in your life, the message from the word that we have today is for you. If you want to, go ahead and turn to the book of 1 John. We have just finished the book of Titus. Now, we're moving along to 1 John. It's not immediately after Titus. It's actually towards the end, preceding Jude and Revelation. There are three books of John. Not John's gospel, the big one, but these are three little letters from John. And we're going to take them one at a time over the next few weeks here in the summer. 1 John. Now... To settle into this book, what we want to do is take our minds back to the original setting. What was going on when the book was written? Because it really does matter to us today. So remember John the Apostle, one of Jesus' twelve. He was very close to Jesus. He was there when Jesus was crucified, when he rose from the dead, and when he ascended. That was about the year 33. Now, if you fast forward a good, let's say, 60 years, 
John is still around, but most of the original followers of Jesus are not. John is the elder statesman of Christianity. He's about 80 years old, and a lot of his friends, his homies, have been actually persecuted and killed. Two generations of Christianity have happened. John's actually moved. A lot of what you read in the New Testament takes uh, place in and around Jerusalem, but John had to leave there because the Roman army came in and sacked it. They destroyed Jerusalem. So John has left Jerusalem, and he's moved to West Turkey, around the city of Ephesus. And he's looking around. Think about somebody. He's advanced in age. He knows he doesn't have a lot of time left. He's taking stock of where the church is after two generations since Jesus. And he's concerned. What he's seen is a lot of people leaving the church... And saying, I have something new and better. This old Christianity, we've advanced from there and now we're here. And it's causing a lot of animosity, you can imagine. It's causing a lot of angst with the people who have stayed in the same spot. And they're seeing some of their leaders move. They're thinking, whoa, I thought I had the real thing. No, 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 no. Come with us. We've got the real thing. John is seeing that. And so he picks up the pen and he writes this message in the book of 1 John to us here today. And he leads with this, really. He says, when it comes to Jesus, y'all should listen to me because I was there. That's his argument. I'm older than all you guys. You weren't there. I was there. Let me tell you about the real Christianity. Look at how he begins the book. Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, talking about the start of Christianity, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, which we touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. That's what he calls the Son of God, the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen, we've heard, we proclaim also to you. Author David Helm has remarked, notice how tactile these verses are. He's talking about what he's seen with his eyes, what he's touched with his hands, what he's proclaimed, what has been manifested. It's very touchy, real reality. John is speaking from his personal experience to give himself street cred. Listen to me, because I was there. I touched Jesus. Y'all didn't touch Jesus. I touched Jesus. And I'm going to tell you what real Christianity is. His words scream authority at us today. Listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. And this is always the case with the Word of God. He's going to say something that still impacts us today. It still has authority today. It still has great meaning and import. So what's this guy, John, this mature saint of the faith, what message does he have for the church? What message does he have for you? Well, he wants you to know who God is, what God does, what he's like, how he loves. That's what's on John's mind as he's writing this letter filled with the Spirit that has been given to us today. And it's so important that John's going to write in a style that's almost poetic. 
John knows that a lecture will not do. Think about a lecture. A lecture starts here and linearly it goes on from point A to point B to point C. That's how lectures work. That's not how he's going to write this, write this book and it's not how you can read this book. Uh, it's a little bit different. Think more about a song. If you hear a song, you're going to hear some verses and then we'll circle back to a chorus. Then there'll be another verse and then you go back to the chorus John's got a few themes in his mind, and he's going to keep circling back to these themes because they're very important to him. Now, we've just got a couple weeks to look at 1 John together. We're just going to look at two major controlling themes. The first one is going to be God is light. Next week, we'll look at the theme God is love. Remember, John wants you to know who God is, what he does, what he's about. And so his message to you today is God is light. So let's unpack that. When the Bible says God is light, what does he mean? Well, he means at least three things here in 1 John. Here's the first one. God is light in that God is faithful and just to forgive. God is light in that He's faithful and just to forgive. Well, what does forgiveness and justice have to do with God being light? I'm glad you asked. Here's the first point of how God is light, being faithful and just to forgive. God is light in that he reveals our sin. God's light in that he reveals our sin. Look at verse 5 with me. The message we have heard from him, message I heard from Jesus, and I proclaim to you is that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. As John gives us this reality, God is light, he makes one thing clear. God is glorious. Uh, one way he says it is with this phrase, in him there is no darkness. There's not one ounce of evil in God. He's always and absolutely holy. You've never met anybody like this. But God is like this. He's pure. He's good. He's complete. God is light. And that is good news. However, the problem is, if we take even a casual look around at our world, we don't always see light, do we? Oftentimes... There's this ever-present shadow of darkness. This week, I just glanced at some headlines, and here are three that I read. One, you may have heard in the Mykolaiv region of Ukraine, a dam burst, it floods a village, and the Ukrainian government comes out and said, as we sent in our rescue workers to help people in the flooded areas, the Russian troops shot at the rescue workers. Oh man, that's dark. Also this week, an NBA star, very popular guy, on Twitter decides to announce that he's having a child, but he's having a child not with his wife, with his girlfriend. That's not God, what God wants. But on top of that, as he's announcing this, another woman on Twitter announces, wait a minute, I thought I was your girlfriend gives a laundry list of awful things, and then says, I think I'm pregnant with your baby. And you're like, oh, 
That's messed up. It's broken. It's dark. And then in France, the country is still mourning because someone jumped the fence of a playground and decided to attack young children with a knife and he went after the strollers. That's how young they were, the kids in the strollers. It's dark. Darkness abounds, shadows, shadows everywhere. But such evil is not in God. It's actually his light that reveals that something's evil at all to us. And John's message today, as hard as it might be here, as, as hard as it might be to here, is that you are also a part of the problem. Right? You are also a part of the problem. Of course, you may never attack someone in a playground with a knife. But John will say, evil lies within your heart. You have rebellion against God. You have sin. And we see this sprinkled and peppered all throughout the book of 1 John. Look at these verses. Verse 8, chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. Messages throughout the book. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 12, if you turn over, John hints that things have always been this way since the very beginning of mankind. He picks two very early people in mankind. And he says, we should not, verse 12 of chapter 3, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and he murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? I've always wondered that question. Why did Cain kill Abel anyway? John's answer is profound. He says, because he murdered him because his own deeds were evil. In other words, he murdered him because he had evil in him. And he was doing evil deeds. It's always been this way. The evil that lies within, you have a sin nature. Now John is going to draw on some Old Testament imagery on how light interacts with darkness. For instance, Isaiah 9.2 tells us this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Think about an x-ray. You know how an x-ray works? X-ray is a light ray, but it has a really little wavelength. So small that it can pass through most particles in your body. Most fleshy stuff, an x-ray light can go through, except the bone. The bone is too dense, so what an x-ray picture does is it reveals the bone and the broken parts of the bone. For instance, if you broke your toe this week, you would see it on an x-ray. This is how the light of God works. God's light shines in your sinful hearts and exposes the brokenness. John wants you to know you are broken. But thankfully, the light of God doesn't leave us there. God is light in revealing our hope. God is light in also revealing our hope. Thankfully, he moves from the bad news, we're all sinners, to the good news, 
we have hope in Jesus Christ. If we were left swimming in the ocean of our own depravity, we would surely drown. But John doesn't do that this morning. Like bees will circle around the sweet honey in the hive, John is going to, throughout the book, keep making ellipticals back around the good news of Jesus Christ so that we do not forget that Jesus Christ is the light of hope in the darkness. For instance, look at chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. That's the good news. Famously, chapter 1, verse 9. We could preach a whole sermon series on this one verse, but we won't. But listen to what he says in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Very similar in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children... I'm such a pastor here. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But, but if anyone does sin, we all do. Once you notice your sin, I want you to know we have an advocate with the Father. Someone pleading your case, standing up with you. And that is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation. That fancy word means it averts the wrath of God. Jesus averted the wrath of God. He's the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Chapter 3, verse 8. He says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love that Jesus, he laid down his life for us. The good news is all over the place in 1 John. Because on the cross, Jesus revealed himself to be God as he lays himself down as the sacrifice for your sins. Christ's death destroys the work of the devil. Satan. And the wrath of God is averted from you to Jesus Christ himself. And he dies so that you may live. As I was reading this this week, I thought about the prophet of Ezekiel. John saw Jesus as the light. He met up with him. He got to eat with him. He got to walk with him. Discipled by Jesus. But Ezekiel, he saw God as light, except he saw God in a vision. Listen to what... Ezekiel said, way back in Ezekiel 1.28, he's telling us about his vision. This is what Ezekiel says. When he looks at God, he says, as the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. What is a rainbow? Well, it's light in water droplets, refracted, reflected. That's how he describes God. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Ezekiel got it. God is light. And only he has the light that can save us. Author Jared Wilson is here. I read an article by him Recently, it was very helpful. 
He says it this way, the same light that exposes us heals us. The same light that exposes us actually heals us. And then thinking back to Adam and Eve, remember in their story, as soon as they sinned, they grabbed fig leaves and tried to cover themselves up with leaves. Oh, give me some leaves. Got to cover myself up. Poor God. That's how, that's how I'll deal with my sin. I'll patch it up with fig leaves. Wilson writes here, they have brought death into the world and he's showing them that only death will cover them now. God responded by killing an animal and covering them with skin. And this is perhaps the first foreshadow of Christ's sacrifice for us, shedding his blood that covers us from all unrighteousness. They came into the light, Adam and Eve, and they were exposed. Despite their own coverings, God covered them with a sacrifice. Christ's shed blood has delivered us from the domain of darkness. His blood speaks the better word of justice. It's accomplished. His blood declares pardon for us, cleansing for us. Then he quotes John Calvin. Calvin says this, This cleansing pardon is gratuitous and perpetual. Gratuitous? What's that mean again? Gratuitous means unwarranted. It's not supposed to happen. The grace of God is unwarranted. It's gratuitous and it's perpetual. It just keeps on going and going and going and going. In the same article, Wilson shares his own story. And it might resonate with yours. Listen to what he says. He says, I was at the place in my life, and the one place I finally felt at home, I eventually got chewed up in and spit out of. Maybe you've had that experience. Friends, family circle, even the church. Wilson says, I've had a pretty good life, but I've also got some pretty good reasons to keep entirely to myself and never let you or anyone else in. That would be the safest and to some extent the most understandable way for me to live my life. He's been hurt. But because of the light of God, listen to what he says. Yet here comes my Savior who ought not to be embarrassed by anything, who has no sin. And while I'm piling up as many fig leaves as I think it might take to impress you and distract you from my sin, Jesus is exposing himself to all the hurt, all the pain, all the weakness, all the condemnation that I am desperately trying to avoid. You cannot be any more exposed than Christ was on the cross. And he went there for us. That is Jesus being the light of God, shining the hope that we have. The same light that exposes us, heals us. And one more sub-point here. God is light, revealing a life of love. We see that here in the scripture. We'll talk more about love next week, but listen to what he says here. Chapter 2, verse 3. We've said that Jesus' death saves us from the wrath of God, but what does it save us to? What type of life does a real Christian live so that I can know, is this real Christianity or is this new stuff real, right? John's wanting to say, okay, let me tell you what a real Christian lives like. I'm going to reveal a life of love. In verse 3, he said, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but he doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar. 
and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What are we saved to? Well, five times in these four verses, we hear keep his commandments, keep his word, walk the same way that Jesus walked. Down in verse 8, he clarifies this. He sums it up, a fine point. What does it mean to live the true Christian life? Verse 8, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. Brotherly love is at the heart of who we are if we're walking in the light. Loved people love people. This week I was communicating with some of our international workers, and you might know that some of our international workers are in a place in Asia where there's a civil war, right? Bombs, tanks, everything you would imagine are going off. Our workers are fine, but I got word that our workers' friends, not from our church, but working with the people from our church, had to evacuate because of the civil war. And they told me that uh, after they left, their, their property had fighting on the property seven out of the last eight days. So I'm glad they got out of there. But unfortunately, they said a village right next to where they evacuated from was recently hit um, by the army there, and an entire village was massacred. Uh, so bad that the surrounding farmers are left with nothing. They have no way to survive. It's such a military intense situation that the UN is not even allowed to come in and do rescue work. And yet, the gospel is going forth. Our workers' partners there, who we are partnering with as well, we're supporting their efforts here. We're giving money to this effort. They're going in now with corn seeds, with rice with vegetable seeds, and we're giving these farmers the supplies they need to keep living, and we're tying it with a gospel witness. But in this letter I got back, it was saying, please pray for the people who are still left there taking supplies in, because it's a tremendous risk to their own health. It raises the question, why, why would they risk it? Well, they're loved by God. So they're going to love others. Walking in the light means living a life of love. That's one way you tell the difference between real Christianity and something that says they've advanced. John says, look for lives of love. John will also say, abiding in this, this love, will give you a confidence that you belong to Jesus. So if you've ever asked the question, man, so-and-so, he's, he's doing this. And I'm still here in traditional Christianity, but he's added this thing, and, and am I right? How do I have confidence? Listen to what John says here. Verse 28 of chapter 2. Little children, abide in him with love. Abide in him so that when he appears, 
we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. You know what he's saying? If you, if you abide in love, when Christ appears, you'll have confidence that you're on the right team, that you're in the right family. You didn't move away from love, so you didn't move away from Christ. God is like revealing a life of love, and this sustains our hope until Jesus reigns. Here's another way that God is light. God is light in that God, God has no darkness. God is light in that there's no darkness in him. John has more to teach us about what he, what he means when he says God is light. God not only reveals sin and reveals the hope of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, God is light also means he's cleaning house. He's cleaning house here. He's recreating the entire cosmos into a place of peace and harmony. Uh, because God is light, he cannot abide darkness, so he's pushing it out of his creation. Not too long ago in my house, we had a special cleaning day. I don't know if you guys have these things, but we have them, and that means in our house, we're going under the sofa, baby. Picking up under the sofa, and we're going under the kids' beds to the nether regions. And as we were cleaning, uh, we're deciding, okay, who's going to do what? And my great son, Asa, he decides to do the first responder role of going under his own bed and cleaning up under his own bed. So he takes off wiggling up under his own bed, and I'm thinking, we're going to lose him to the vast darkness. He's under there a little while. He's wiggling. And then things start being thrown out from under the bed. There's some toys, some stuffed animals, some clothing from his siblings. There's some candy wrappers that come out from there. There's some partially eaten food. Some of the Trump documents, I think, were in there. Uh, now I know where the first strain of COVID came from. It was a mess. It was a mess. And we were cleaning house. God cleans house a, a little bit differently. Look in 2.8 again. The darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Now, now look with me in verse 15 of chapter 2. Do not love the world. This is what God is cleaning. John will call the things of the world, everything evil that's opposing God, are the things of the world. Thoughts, actions, institutions. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's what he means, the evil things that are against God. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away. Why is it passing away? God is cleaning how? What's also passing away? All the desires. But whoever does the will of God will abide for ever. Now he's telling us these things, if someone's advancing in Christianity, make sure they're not just loving the things of the world. 
Because those things are passing away. Notice, as a good pastor, he's going to focus on your affections. Listen to that language. Do not love the world. He's talking about desires here. He's concerned about what you cherish. Or at TCC, we might say what you treasure. He mentions three types of desires here that are going to pass away. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life, or pride in your possessions. All three of these things are warnings against getting carried away with the physical or the material things. Don't let your heart latch on to them. Scholar F.F. Bruce is helpful. He insightfully writes about this verse. If our affections, instead of being set on what is of permanent importance, are set on passing things that the heart desires or that the eye delights in, or things that encourage us to have a good conceit of ourselves, then we are fearfully impoverished. A good phrase. If you're setting your sights on the things of this world and calling it new Christianity, better Christianity, then your faith is fearfully impoverished. My friend's faith and him himself is fearfully impoverished. It's a faux Christianity just built around the things that your heart desires and you're sprinkling in a little bit of traditional Christianity. God is not having that. That is passing away. This week, I was at the pool. My kids were swimming. I was not. I was in the chair by the pool. I am reading, and I notice a couple of kids. They're probably seven, eight years old, and they're playing, and they're starting to get loud. So I look up, and I see the whole scene, as kids might do. They're starting to fuss, and I, I'm trying to figure out what's it about. And I'm, so I'm there with my daughter, and she helps me explain, and I see it. There's a little girl, seven years old, and she's found a bug in the pool. You've seen them. They float in the pool sometimes. Couldn't tell what it was. But oh, how she loved this bug. And her adversary, the seven-year-old boy, wanted to take out the bug. So her heart, you could tell her, she wanted to protect this bug. He goes over and he grabs one of those paddle boards that kids, the styrofoam things that kids learn to kick with. And he grabs it and he's running over like this. And she shoves him. And she pushes him, and she grabs him, and she screams and screams and screams! You can tell really quick that her sense of preservation had blown up into focused violence against this boy. Nobody died. It was okay. But isn't that just like the human heart? We start off wanting to protect something, preserve something, and then it can escalate into something entirely different than what Christianity truly is. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 19. We have echoes of this here. Verse 24, remember what Jesus said? He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for what? A rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why is he picking on rich people? He's not necessarily just saying... There's a temptation to be ruled by our material possessions. Watch out. It's hard to get into heaven that way. John's saying the same thing. It's easy to be shackled by physical desires or material things. 
He's going to make a couple things clear here in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He makes these things clear. One, any worldview or heart impulse that puts material things, including the physical, including sexuality, on the throne of your heart is not from the Father. God has no such darkness. And two, what's he saying here? The part of this world that is oriented against God It's not going to last. It's passing away. It's temporary. It's non-permanent. It's short-term. But notice the contrast between those who are opposing God and those who are abiding in Him with love. Look at the contrast there. Verse 27. He says, Do not... Do not work for the food that perishes, for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man. And he will give you this. This is back in John 6, verses 27. He's saying is if you want eternal life, eternal life to abide in you, you must not go after the things of the world. You must abide in the light. So to be a part of true Christianity You must see that God is light in that he has no darkness. Finally, John's going to tell us God is light in that he gloriously reveals himself to us. He reveals himself. He grants us knowledge of what's true and what's not, of who he truly is. We see this here in the letter in 2.18. John is now specifically going to call out the people who have left. He's going to get down to business and he's going to address the specific issue in that church as to why people were advancing into a new type of Christianity. Today, it might be something different, right? But in this church, he's focusing on the issue that they had in the first century. And he's going to do it by saying, God is not like this. So look in verse 18. He says, children, chapter 2, verse 18, children, It's the last hour. By the last hour, he simply means the time between when Jesus came the first time and when Jesus is coming again. All of this time, he calls the last days, the last hour. And he says here in verse 18, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, and so many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it's the last hour. They, these Antichrists, went out from us. But they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. What does this mean? What in the world is an antichrist? Why is he talking about that? That's weird language. Well, you might be interested to know that this antichrist language that you may have heard before, in the New Testament, it's only listed here in 1 John and in 2 John. It's not all over the book of Revelation or anything like that. It's just here. What does he mean by it? Well, he means anti. It's someone who opposes Christ, right? These people who were walking away from the church in the first century were opposing Christ and true Christianity. And John says, somewhat surprisingly, there are a lot of these types of antichrist. There are a lot of people who oppose Christ. 
How do they oppose Christ? Specifically, listen to what he says. It's very clear. Verse 22, 2.22. If you want to know, hey, what's an antichrist? He tells us, verse 22, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. That's very similar to the way he's going to say it in the next book, which is 2 John. He also writes of the Antichrist concept in verse 7 in 2 John. He said, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So these Antichrists who perhaps anticipate a future greater Antichrist They are people who are saying that this Jesus of Nazareth guy, he was not the son of God. Not the son of God, this Jesus of Nazareth. I've moved on to have a greater understanding of who he is. I've left you guys behind, but you can come with me and understand him better. That's what they were dealing with in the first church. And Jesus says, uh, he says about Jesus, no, no, no. Jesus is the son of God. They're the same person. Jonathan Edwards famous commentator wrote about this. He said, this idea of Jesus not being the son of God is the contrivance of the wit of hell in opposition to the gospel. The wit of hell has came up with this idea that Jesus of Nazareth is not the son of God. For John knows for the the gospel to even work, you have to have a holy sacrifice and someone who's holy making the sacrifice And only God is holy. We know Jesus made the sacrifice, so Jesus must be God for this whole system of salvation to work. He must be the Son of God. The light of God enlightens us to this reality. The Father and Son are intimately connected. They're one in essence. A long, long time ago, there was a great Christian writer. His name was Athanasius. He was the father And he was the man about the Trinity. He had this stuff figured out. And here's the analogy that he used. It's pretty helpful. He says, imagine a man who by craft can make a statue, and then by nature, he can make a son, right? By craft, he can make a statue. By nature, he can make a son. And he'll say, the statue is always going to be made of statue stuff. Yesterday, my daughter celebrated her birthday, and she got the uh, Harry Potter Lego set. It's like a castle, and you got all these cool Legos, and you could buy a bunch of them. They all connect. That's going to be made of Lego, right? Right now, they're having an exhibit here in Pleasant Valley where they're having sculptures. It's taken over the Van Van Gogh uh, sculpture thing if you're into art. Lego is gone, and now Lego is here. You can go see Lego art, Pleasant Valley, Promenade, and every statue is going to be made of Lego. Statues are made of statues stuff. Athanasius also says, what about the sun? The sun is going to be made out of father stuff. Whatever it is the father has, the sun is going to be made out of the same Stuff. Because some people were saying, well, if Jesus is the Son, he's not fully God. Can't be. 
Athanasius said, yes. If Jesus is God's son, he has to be the light. He must be fully God. He must be the divine, long-awaited Christ. In the Gospel of John, which, by the way, is just a longer treatment of these letters, the same message, a lot longer to read. John told us the purpose of his writing. John said, I'm writing this whole long gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The whole reason he wrote the book. And yet people have gone away from that. This is where Judaism fails. This is where Mormonism fails. I love my Muslim neighbors. But their religion fails here. Jesus is God. He reveals himself as a light to be the Son of God. Without a full affirmation of the Trinity, including Jesus as fully God and fully man, the gospel breaks down. So you might have the question, in the ancient church and in our church today, how can people who have the same teachers, take me and my friend, for instance, we had the same influences, read the same books, read the same Bible, talked about it together. How can we go different ways, right? In the early church, they all had the same letters and Yet some went this way and said, Jesus is not God, really. And others stayed, but no, no, I think he is God. Yes, I believe. How did that happen? Same influences, but they end up going in different directions. John's going to tell us here, these antichrists are saying, Jesus is not God. True followers are saying, yes, he is. What's the difference? Well, the difference is the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 2, sorry, verse 20 of chapter 2. But you, you guys who stayed and didn't leave the church, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Aha, there's a difference. Unlike the Antichrist, people who left the church, you've been illuminated. You've been born again by the Holy Spirit. God is light in that he opened your eyes to the truth about who Jesus is as the Son of God. At some point, at some place, God revealed himself to you. And that's what's keeping you focused on the correct message. That's what lets you know who God truly is. Remember the old story that John wrote about in his big book, not these little books, but his big gospel of John, chapter 3. He told a story, and it was about Nicodemus, the old Pharisee. He comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. What does he say? He said, teacher, we know that you're a teacher from God. Oh, he's getting really close, isn't he? Not saying Jesus is God, but he said, I know you're from God, for nobody can do these signs unless God is with him. He's getting closer to saying, ha, you're God, but he's not quite there. Why isn't he there? Well, Jesus answers. Look, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, You can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you're never going to see it correctly unless the Spirit gives you a rebirth. Nicodemus, well, now, how can an older man be born a second time? Remember, he said that. Am I to enter a second time into my mother's womb? He's still not getting it. So Jesus says, 
I say to you, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, he uses water because Ezekiel used water to represent the Spirit. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. The Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see what is good and true and glorious about the nature of God. And once we've seen it, we are to rest in Jesus. Look at the end of chapter 2, verse 27. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. He's talking about the people who've left. You don't need them to teach you about this new kind of Christianity. The Spirit has taught you. His anointing teaches you about everything that's true, not lies. Just as it has taught you to abide in him. Take rest in what God has already revealed to you as true. You're going to wonder throughout your Christian life, hey, I heard this guy say this. I wonder if that's true. If it is true, I need to leave this and go right over here. John's saying, no, abide in what's been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. That's given to you because God is light. So to summarize, John's saying to us this morning, God is light in that he's faithful and just to forgive. God is light. He has no darkness in him. God is light. He gloriously reveals himself as Trinity. You know, a great psalm that we have in our Old Testament, Psalm 27. In Psalm 27, you have David writing and he starts the whole argument, his whole cry from his soul by saying, God is light. And it's wonderful because he takes an application by saying, God is light. And you can tell it comforts him in a lot of different ways that we weren't able to talk about today. So I want to read Psalm 27 with you. You can turn there if you want. But this is what knowing God is light did for David. And so this week, if you meditate on this, what does it mean that God is light? How can that change me? I hope that you'll have this David experience. It worked for him. Listen to what he says in Psalm 27. David said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? What an application did he just make? Oh, if God's my light, I don't have to be chained by fear. He goes on. Evildoers will assail me and eat up my flesh. You think you have problems. <laughs> David's got them. He's got you beat. But I bet you do have adversaries. I bet you do have people who are against you. Foes. David said, it's going to be them that stumble and fall. Though an army encamps against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arrive against me, I will be confident. One thing I've asked for the Lord, he's seen that God is light, so he's asked something of him. I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To what? Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Knowing that God is light, he revealed his beauty. And now David just wants to see the beauty of the Lord of the Lord. I want to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter. 
in the day of trouble. Interesting, now the light is hiding David, right? He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord, seeing God is light. Give David happiness. Oh, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face, and my heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. Hide not your face from me. You're the light. Don't hide your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, God of my salvation. For my father and my mother, they've forsaken me. Not you. Continues to say, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemy. Give me up not to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me. They breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. He's looking because God is light. He allows him to look. I will be in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord, for he is light. Let's pray together. God, we do know that you are light here today. God, you are faithful and just to forgive us. You do that through the work of Jesus on the cross. So my prayer is that you shine the light of hope in Jesus on our hearts today. Some of us have never seen you before, God. Show, show yourself off. Others of us, we need an awakening. We need to step back into the light and see your beauty, God. Be light to us today. Let us see you and be our joy that we might treasure Christ. God, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.